Well, hello, everybody. Welcome once again to the Nefesh Podcast. This is episode 41. And this week we're going to be talking about, I, I know the title is probably intriguing, was Ryan Reynolds' uh, English football, which we know in the United States as soccer, and all of that have to do with the soul. And yes, of course, Ryan Reynolds has a soul, um, and so does every other you know, soccer player. Um, but I came across an article uh, today that I thought was really compelling, and especially as it resonates with something that uh, has been on my heart for several years, the idea of really encouraging people in their calling and their profession and helping everybody to see that their talents, their gifts that God has given them uh, is important, that, that, um, that the church is often emphasized or theology is often emphasized the clergy, pastors, full-time, full-time ministers, and hasn't really done enough to equip every person to see their calling and their profession as being part of their calling, as being important. I've, I've uh, been a fan of Ryan Reynolds for a while, um, obviously not every movie and not necessarily, um, you know, all parts of his life, but just, you know, his acting, I find it, have found it to be funny and interesting. And so I noticed when he bought this English football, and, and for us in, the, in America, that's essentially soccer, he bought this team with a, a friend of his, I think must have been a year ago, maybe more. And at first, I didn't really think anything of it. In fact, I've only been kind of casually following, noticing they, you know, some some news articles will come my way, and it'll be a, a picture of him in having flown to Wales, and uh, where he bought this team. This team is in Wrexham, Wales, and going there to kind of cheer them on each week. And so, I really just thought it was a way for him to invest in another, you know like an investment way to grow his money. So he has some various businesses that he has. And so I thought, oh, that's just, that's just him investing in a, in a soccer team and, you know, attempting to make money off of it. I really didn't have any, and I, I, I guess there's a documentary about the team, about what he's been doing. They've gone to Rexham, Wales, and they've interviewed the town and the people and talked about how much this, investment into the city and into the soccer team has has made a difference and I, I think just um, just in the last few days like this team came back as really the underdog underdog and with the encouragement and investment by Reynolds and others and and really the attention that has been drawn there the city has and the, the team has won and has moved up uh, whatever that means, I don't follow. I don't follow, uh, you know, world soccer or or English football. Um, but uh, they've, I think they've won and they're moving up. What What was really the most interesting to me is the impact that Reynolds and his partner buying this team and investing in it and bringing attention to this city. What What the difference it has made for this city. So this football club apparently is the oldest in Wales, which may not mean a lot just because it's the oldest in a little small country. Um, but it's the, it's like, goes back to the 1800s. That's how old it is. So we're talking um, uh, a long-standing history of soccer in this, this little city. And this city, however, is in like the northern part 
of Wales and it's less known. Apparently there's like no major freeways where you can get there. It's kind of back roads and, you know, people visit Southern Wales. They, they visit Cardiff and other places that are beautiful. I've been to Wales. It's beautiful. Um, but it, it's lesser known. And so this, this city is, has been struggling. It's been struggling through the pandemic. The team has been struggling for years. And I don't, I haven't watched the documentary. I don't know a whole lot about it other than just kind of reading this article and getting an, a, a grasp for, for this. But what Reynolds and his partner did for this city by bringing attention, by uh, loaning, investing it, in money into this team and helping to, to um, rally the fans around it, uh, to create buy-in from the fans and the community has raised the, the awareness of this little city. And so people, tourists are flocking there and it has gone a huge way in revitalizing the city. That is a concept that has taken a while over the last, but over the last nine to 10 years has begun to resonate deeply with me. It's not something I would have thought about before, not ever being interested in being a business owner, an entrepreneur, never, never feeling a, a calling to that, always feeling called to some tor- some type of ministry, whether pastoring or teaching. And that's what I've been doing for the last uh, 20, 25 or more years of my life. But about nine years ago, I was beginning to be in conversations with um, a community, a, a an organization connected to um, a scholarship fund that, that really helped pastors get their degrees and, and encouraged pastors to connect with their church and encourage the, the average person in the church, encourage them to see their life, their investment in their city, their, their wealth or lack of wealth, whatever it might be as part of, as part of sharing the gospel, as part of God's kingdom and bringing God's kingdom here on earth. One of the things that in the evangelical community we have done that, that I think has hindered our, our understanding of seeing life and our calling, even to the point of revitalizing cities. We, one of the things that we have done that has hindered that is we have emphasized the clergy and the calling of clergy. And by clergy, I mean uh, pastors or full-time missionaries, anybody who's considered full-time and they get they, they are solely work for the church or work for a missions organization. Um, and those are two of the most common full-time ministry positions or chaplains, although that's a little bit different. We have elevated that role. And by elevating that role, we have unknowingly or unwittingly reduced the, the life of the average person. And so even though, and this is not always true, and not every uh, not every Protestant tradition has done this to the same extent, but we have really leaned into the uniqueness of the calling to full time ministry. And so, you most often hear about this. I think in, in my circles, in my experience, you most often hear about this special calling to ministry. But you less often hear about the unique calling 
that each and every one of us have to our vocation and our profession and to the impact that our vocation and our profession have on our community around us and on the city around us. And I know I've shared some of this before in previous episodes. Uh, I think the poverty and the soul has, has been one that, that probably is, is most connected to this. But I don't think we have, especially in some Pentecostal or again, some evangelical communities that really emphasize salvation as the end point and really just kind of getting everybody to heaven as much as possible and, and really this life just not being that important. We have at times minimized this life, our calling in this life, our vocation, the importance of our community and the importance of our city, we have minimized that in order to prioritize salvation and heaven, in order to get people saved. And what we have lost is our daily existence as followers of Jesus. If life were only about getting to heaven, How might our lives be really different? How might we, we, you know, in some communities, some religious communities have done this, you know, literally become poor and just every day of your life is just, is just trying to win people over and get people saved. Life becomes very hard that way. It becomes hard to, to uh, reproduce as God tells us in Genesis 1, to subdue the earth, rule it, but to multiply in the earth. And there have been various times throughout Christian history over the last 2,000 years where, where people have gotten stuck in this mindset that, you know, everything is bad, our only hope is heaven, we're just here to get saved, so let's just focus on that and let everything else fall by the wayside. And it's not a very good or healthy place to be. In fact, it really has, it, it, it leads to some some against some unhealthy mindsets to the extreme of, and this is the, the extreme and the minority, but to the extreme of even like, you know, doomsday cults or end, end time cults or, or other really tragic experiences. Again, that's, that's the extreme and that's rare, but it, it can. Where the mindset becomes so, as the saying goes, I don't think it's a very, I don't think it's the best saying, but we're familiar with it. I think some of us, you know, you're so heavenly minded that, that you're no earthly good. That there is a whole life that God has called us to live and an impact that he calls us to have that I believe is rooted in scripture. And when I read articles like this one from CNN.com talking about Ryan Reynolds and this football team and the impact that it has on this city. It just fills my heart with such joy to think about people's lives being changed and touched by, by a couple of people coming in and investing into their community. When communities prosper in a healthy way, people prosper and have an opportunity to fulfill their calling and their vocation. As we have talked about before, there is nothing spiritual about poverty in and of itself. God is not into people becoming poor and rejecting wealth and all of the things of this world. Poverty is 
and in that situation is much more of a mindset than it is a condition because you can be wealthy and never have enough and you can be poor and be completely satisfied. God is not calling us, as we mentioned before, just merely to give up life to the point of no existence or not being able to thrive and not being able to help others. Diane Chandler wrote a book a few years back on, on uh, spiritual formation. And she, uh, Dallas Willard talks about the six dimensions of the self and, and, and really the six dimensions of spiritual formation. Diane Chandler, who is a, uh, I believe is a PhD professor at Regent University, she talks about seven dimensions, seven dimensions that need spiritual transformation. And one of those is our vocation. And she, in that, in doing so, she raises, she elevates the, the vocation and our calling to work and to utilize our talents for God's glory. She elevates that to the, to the same level as other aspects of our being that need spiritual formation. God has given us talents and abilities to live our lives for his glory, to create to produce, to build, to help others, to again bring God glory. In the things that I do, if I do them well, and I grow in my spiritual formation, I will reflect Christ in what I do, and people will see Christ in me, and they will see Christ transformation of me but also the beauty of what he has given me because he will continue to shine through and not my own ego or talent in truly transformed individuals you see the amazing ability that God has given that person and you see ultimately God through them rather than the person themselves but that comes about when our profession, our vocation, our calling is also in the process of transformation. And we have the opportunity to help people in need, to help people find good jobs, to encourage uh, community flourishing, uh, to, to encourage city flourishing. And I, I believe that we can see this in scripture. In Jeremiah chapter 29, in the, in the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, Jeremiah is an Old Testament prophet, prophet and he is a contemporary of Ezekiel. So if you ever read uh, Jeremiah, it really would be helpful to go and read Ezekiel as well, because they, they were living and ministering at the same time. But Ezekiel had been taken to Babylon in the Babylonian captivity when Jerusalem fell. He had been taken all the way to Babylon and was there trying to lead the community, serve the people, keep them on track, continuing to really try to shepherd them and give them advice and warnings. And, and that's really what the book of Ezekiel is about. Jeremiah, unfortunately, had to stay in Jerusalem. Uh, he, God, God's plan was for Jeremiah to, to stay and tough it out in Jerusalem. And so that's where he was. And he was continually trying to get the people to accept the punishment, both in Jerusalem and Babylon, so that they could understand what God wanted them to do. At this time in history, nations were conquering each other. I mean, it was just one empire building after another. 
And so Babylon at that time was at the height and, and was able to come in and overtake Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, and take most of the people captive over to Babylon. But uh, empires, it was not uncommon for them to leave some of the people behind so that there would be a, a remnant, so to speak, that would be there to continue to manage things. They would be led by their own people, those who had an agreed uh, you know, contract or whatever it was with the rulers, with the conquerors. And so Jeremiah was one of the ones that stayed behind. But in Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah feels compelled to send a letter to the exiles in Babylon, to where Ezekiel is. And he feels compelled to tell them that they have got to accept the punishment of what has happened and rather to spend or waste their life in mourning and grieving over the loss of their city to actually see this as a new start, an opportunity to get on with life, to build, plant, have kids, let their kids get married and have kids because they were going to be there for a while would have been the one of the hardest things for them to hear let alone just having lived through this this very traumatic uh conquering and then exile but these are god's words in in chapter 29 verse 4 it says this is what the lord almighty the god of israel says to all those i carried into exile from jerusalem to Babylon build houses and settle down plant gardens and eat what they produce marry and have sons and daughters find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters increase in number there do not decrease so God was telling the Israelites, hey, this is not a time to give up on life. Find ways to flourish. In verse 7, he goes on to say, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city, meaning pray and support and help the city to prosper and find peace. And skipping ahead to verse 11, this is one of the famous verses that you may already be familiar with, but now looking at it from the context of this chapter. Verse 11, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. He goes on to say that eventually I will bring you back from captivity, and we know from history that he does. After a period of 70 years, a remnant does go back and begin to rebuild the wall and the temple while the rest of the Israelites stay. They don't all go back, but some of them do, and they are able to go back and restore, uh, restore Jerusalem. God has to tell them to settle down, and not just to settle down, but to thrive. 
in a foreign city in exile and to essentially get on, not just, well, actually more than that, not just get on with life, but to really, really live and prosper. You know, when thinking about how many Christians live in a various community or city, can we say that our cities and our communities thrive because we are there? Shouldn't it be? And not just, I'm not talking about just traditional salvations. Yeah, that, that is great. The more people who commit to following Christ, the better. But truly thriving. That the city is thriving and not in an unhealthy way, in a healthy way. That people are caring for one another, that it's prospering and able to help others. Are our communities and our cities being impacted because we, as followers of Jesus, are there? You know, in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, another famous couple of verses, Jesus says, Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Now, that word go has often, I think, been misunderstood. And it has this sense of uh, as if you were to go to a place or an event and make disciples. And uh, what Jesus is saying there is similar, but not the same, actually. Similar to our understanding of salvation today, but it really isn't the same at its essence. And this is one of the challenges and frustrations of people like Dallas Willard and others, people who in the 20th and 21st century have really renewed the call back to discipleship and spiritual formation. Jesus calls us to be disciples, and we today are calling people to salvation. I think our intention is to call them to discipleship, but we're really calling them to a salvation with the end point of heaven rather than discipleship and a transformed life daily with Jesus. And so we pick up that word go, and in our minds it, we hear the phrase, go and evangelize the world so that they can be saved and go to heaven. But that Greek word for go, and I don't remember the grammar, uh, the grammar context there, or the actual uh, naming of the grammar there, but the word in the Greek, as far as whether it's, it's a present or past, I, I believe it's present active or something like that. But the word in the Greek go means as you go. Now we have kind of translated it as go because we there's a whole phrase that's tied to it and the Greek um, and the, the English doesn't always translate the Greek or the Hebrew well. So we, re we replace this phrase as you go with a sim simple word go and in so doing we miss the essence of it. What if we were to read it as the word really means in the Greek? 
as you go, comma, make disciples. It's kind of like saying, as you live, make disciples. As you live from day to day, as you go, as you interact with people, as you live, make disciples. How does that change our understanding of that passage? How does that change our understanding of what true evangelism is? How does that maybe impact our understanding of what we are called to do? Dallas Willard and uh, Dr. Gary Black in their book, um, The Renovation of, or I'm sorry, The Divine Conspiracy Continued, um, really discuss this idea of if, if Christians were truly living like Jesus' disciples all over, then business ethics, uh, politics, communities, schools would be transformed because of the Christians who are living out that gospel message to be a disciple and then to make disciples. We look at examples like Ryan Reynolds and I love what he is doing there in Rexham, Wales. Where are Christians doing that elsewhere? And why does it matter? All of us have a calling and a purpose on our lives. We were created with certain gifts and talents. We were created with the ability to create, to think, and some of us do better at uh, some tasks than others. Some of us have brains that are so brilliant they work like a computer and you, and maybe you're building computers and that is your calling. Some of us are literally good creating and building with our hands. We can look at an item and completely transform it and make it look like something incredibly new, amazing. Some of us have sports and athletic abilities and, and the, the enjoyment of watching the competition in a good game. I love, I love watching a good game, talented player, players perform well. There's something just so very cool about that. Some are incredible teachers and are able to connect with people in incredible ways. And, and they have the patience to work with elementary and junior high and high school kids. And yes, some, some, some are called to full-time vocational ministry. But that is only some. The rest of the world's population that are not called to full-time ministry are still called not just to make disciples as they go, but they are called to live out the purpose and the talents and the gifts that God gave them. We have too much seen a separation between this world and the next world or between what we call and what the New Testament will, will refer to as worldly things or as John tells us, be in the world but not of the world. And so 
we have at times wrestled with kind of a, a Gnostic form of view that everything in this world, uh, what we would call matter, right, is evil. And really it's only the spirit that lives on and only the spirit that's important. And only, and so that's translated even, even into things like the afterlife. Only heaven matters. And it only matters where your soul is going to go when it dies. I disagree with that thought. And I think it's not supported throughout scripture. I think the very mandate that was given to us in Genesis chapter 1 still lives on. That we are to care for the earth, multiply and be leaders of the creation that God has called us. That we are to use our gifts and our talents and our abilities for his purpose. There's a passage, I believe it's in Thessalonians, where, where Paul tells the people in Thessalonica to make it their goal to live a simple life and to work with their hands. Now, I know he's talking about the first century church, and, and not all of us work with our hands today, building or carpentry. But, but to make it their goal, to live a simple life, and, it, and essentially what he's telling them, what he's telling them is to simply live their lives in a way that really brings honor to God, that, that allows people to see what they're doing on a daily basis. So in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, Paul says, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you. Verse 12, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Well, what was going on in the church of Thessalonica at this time? They, they were worried that the rapture had already happened. They were worried or they were worried about how it would happen. They were worried about, you know, the people who had already died, what was going to happen to them. They were, they, some, some in some of the churches we know, uh, I don't remember if it was this one or in other churches, that they were just kind of given up and waiting until Jesus was going to come back in the rapture. And so you've got all of these conv or, or extreme responses. You've got people who are just stopping working because Jesus is going to come back. You've got people worried that it's already happened, that Jesus is already come you know people worried about the people who have died in the past like people even then were wrestling what do I do with my life if all that matters is getting me to heaven then what is my life for and Paul says make it your ambition to lead a quiet life minding your own business and working with your hands Our goal in life should be to find and fulfill our purpose that God has called us so that we might bring glory to him and we might impact the lives of others in kingdom ways. The purpose of this program that I was a part of uh, nine years ago Originally, the name was Faith, Work, and Economics, and then it, it changed into Made to Flourish. As it began to really help, the focus became on helping pastors 
How do we help the people in our congregation see that their lives matter wherever they are, wherever they are working? And if they're not yet in a job where they feel like they are um, living their life's purpose, so to speak, and utilizing their talent to help them discover what that is so that they can impact their community for the glory of God. When Jesus called the original 12 disciples, back then it was the tradition or it, 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 this was the way a rabbi called a disciple. And it's important to note that rabbis are not seen in the Old Testament. This was something that came about during what we refer to as the intertestamental period between the Testaments, where, um, you know, you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, all of a sudden you see these groups called the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you see uh, baptism, which was not an Old Testament concept. You see the word rabbi, which was not an Old Testament concept. And these groups came up and these various traditions came up during that intertestamental period when the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed and when Israel, the Jewish people coming back, both in exile and coming back from exile, had to figure out new ways of, of serving Yahweh, had to figure out new rituals, had to uh, reorient their focus. Their focus originally had been on the temple and really making that an idol at times, while at the same time not really caring for it the way God wanted them to. But then when they have no temple, what do they do? They began to focus on scripture. They began to focus on the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. And they begin to, to focus on how do we live a righteous life. And so you get the development of these rabbis and these schools of rabbis who really help the Jewish people understand what it means to be a follower of Yahweh. And so Jesus comes on the scene right at the, the height of that, especially uh, right before the, the temple, the second temple is destroyed in about 40 years after Jesus's death. So he's growing up in that in that era where rabbis have really taken over and to the point where they have begun to pollute or pervert or make extreme the commands from the Old Testament. And people would follow a rabbi's direction and interpretation of scripture. It's kind of like following today a various theological tradition. And which is part of what made some of these things so challenging and, and what Jesus was really protesting against, the, the inaccurate and, and just uh, oppressive interpretation of the law that the Pharisees and other religious leaders had been imposing upon people. Now, what's interesting about Jesus is that it doesn't appear that he was necessarily under the school of any particular rabbi. Although he is hanging out in the temple, at least we see that in, in Luke, uh, at the age of, the book of Luke, in the, at, at the age of 12, he's hanging around, out with, uh, with religious leaders and debating them. But he, at that time, every, every Jewish boy and girl went to what we would today call you know, Hebrew school. But after a while, the Hebrew boys, the Jewish boys, would continue to go and the girls would stop. And at a certain point... You could only continue your education and study of, of the Bible or of the, the scriptures at that time if a rabbi called you to follow him. Jesus is described as the son of a carpenter and more than likely was following in that tradition 
because that's how he is known. Over time, he becomes known as a rabbi. Again, this is kind of the prevailing thought. Uh, others may disagree with this, but the prevailing thought he was became known as a rabbi because of how he taught. He taught as one with authority, and he had disciples. But Jesus, when he finds Peter, James, John, and all of the others, they were all in their father's professions. Peter was a fisherman. Matthew was a tax collector. Others were uh, kind of political insurgents. We, Judas Iscariot seems to be one of those. And so they were, they, instead of, basically, they weren't one of the ones who were called by rabbis. They reached the end point and nobody, nobody said to these 12 men, come follow me. So they left school and went more than likely and followed in their father's professions. And when Jesus came to them and said to them, come and follow me, they all left their professions to become disciples of Jesus as a rabbi. Because that's what you did back then when you became a disciple of a rabbi. Unless Jesus specifically in our individual lives calls us to full-time ministry today, when Jesus says, deny yourselves, take up your cross and follow me, he is not calling each and every one of us to full-time ministry like he did with the disciples. In fact, he, what they were doing was he was setting up, obviously, the early church to then go and make disciples of others. But becoming a disciple of Jesus does not mean giving up our profession and the purpose and the calling that God has on our life. Because not everybody should be a full-time pastor. Some of you should not, right? Some of you should not be a teacher. You are called to be a builder or uh, to be a doctor, like a medical doctor. And some of us are not. I know for sure I am not called to be a medical doctor. I can't handle the sight of blood. That was not my calling. God doesn't call us in our moment of surrender to Christ to leave our profession and our calling and our purpose. And yet that is what becomes confusing today. We confuse the understanding of the initial discipleship. And we think that is what God calls us to uh, today. And so even the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10, where Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, and she's listening to him. This was the posture of a disciple. Only disciples sat at the rabbi's feet. And disciples could not be girls. Girls could not be disciples. So this was, uh, this was very, so essentially what it's implying is that Mary was a disciple. And Jesus was allowing it. And Martha comes over to Jesus. And, and it's the story that you may be familiar with. And says, Jesus, tell my sister to help me. I'm getting all this ready for you. Martha, in that situation, was actually following the right protocol for that social culture. She was getting everything ready for the rabbi for the evening meal. And Mary was going counterculture. And Jesus, when he responds to her, he doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't condemn her. He simply says, Martha, many, many things are good. Many things are important. But Mary has chosen what is most important, and, and I'm not going to take it from her. Martha, what you're doing is great. Keep, keep getting 
dinner ready if that's what you want to do. But Mary is called, Mary feels this desire to spend time with me. And spending time with me is the most important thing you can do. He wasn't knocking Mary for what she was trying to do. He was simply saying, don't take Mary away from my presence because she desires to be here. I think one of the reasons why people get, get, especially when they're new Christians or when they begin to study the scripture and they begin to get excited about it, they associate um, people who are called to full-time ministry as being a whole level closer to God or as people who just get to spend time studying scripture and praying with people all day. Uh, they don't, we don't, um, and we are not. We are not, you know, closer or holier or more perfect. And um, it is not what we get to do all day, every day, is to study scripture and pray. There's an association there that, that again, and, and it's something, I think part of the reason has been because we have confused the concept of discipleship and evangelism. We have assumed that evangelism is for everybody, but discipleship is only for those who really, 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 really want to get close to God. And the assumption is that pastors and missionaries are those who are called, those who are special enough to be called to full-time ministry, have that desire to be disciples and are therefore close to God. We have things upside down and all convoluted. Full-time ministers, pastors, people who are called to full-time ministry are not more special. They are not more holy. They do not have the most, the greatest talents. They are just, God uniquely created them to be that. Just like professional basketball players are not more holy, are not more talented than anybody else, and they may not even be the most talented basketball players on the earth. But they have a calling and an ability to hang and do all X amount of games every year in the, you know, the National Basketball Association. There are some people who are called and cr created and gifted to be able to create things amazingly with their hands. I am not one of those people. I break things. I, I go too fast. I don't follow directions. I just want to get it done quickly. And I, I end up breaking it and messing it up. Even if I were to slow down and follow directions, I still do not have the ability. My hands get all just like mixed in there. And, and you know, one day I'm going to chop a finger off accidentally. That's just not my ability. But there are people who can make beautiful things, beautiful houses, beautiful cars. And that is their, that is their gifting. And they are not more special, more holy or closer to God. We have, we have created a system, especially in discipleship, spiritual formation, and our understanding of our role in God's kingdom. We have created a system that has really gotten things so confused. And we leave it to the Ryan Reynolds of the world to invest in communities and believe in and encourage and help to motivate communities to come back from the brink of extinction. We leave it to them because we focus on a few different things. We, we, we wish we could, you know, do something else or we don't understand the unique purpose and calling that God has on our life. What if you, in your calling and in your purpose and the unique gifting that God has given you, what if you focused on that? following Jesus, 
fulfilling that calling, impacting your community and your city? What if you as a business owner focused on that, not just as a way to get make money or make a living, but what if you, as you are being formed into the image of Christ, were able to focus on how you can use your business to influence the community, to build relationships, to give people a job, to help the various needs of your community, to believe in people, encourage people, help people rise out of the difficulties that they have. Have you ever done something well and not in, a, in any way a reflection of your ego or a bad thing, but really thought, oh my goodness, look at what I did. Take the ego out of it because there's nothing wrong in looking at an accomplishment and saying, wow, look at what I did. God has given you and I amazing abilities and our calling and our purpose. And he delights in those things just as much as we should. Some of us too much, but that's a whole other humble pride thing. God has called us with gifts and talents and he wants to, us to use them well. Why? So that as we go, we make disciples. So that as we go, our daily life may win the respect of outsiders. So that as we pray for our city and help our city to prosper, we prosper and the city prospers and God's name is glorified. Whatever it is that God has called you to do, it is that you have a burning desire to do God wants you to do it well because that is part of your spiritual formation and he wants you to do it well for you and for your community for your city for your family and for those around you this is one of the ways we bring God's kingdom to earth that his kingdom can come and his will can truly be done my prayer for you and I is that we would continue to lean into those strengths and gifts and allow ourselves to dream and to feel the, the amazing ability being made in His image to dream and get a vision for life and for our calling, how we can impact it and how we can truly step up. My prayer for you and I is that we will dream and plan and take steps forward and live so that we bring glory to God, that we make disciples, and that we impact the world for God's kingdom. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Nefesh podcast. I hope you have enjoyed it, and I will talk to you next time.